dig a hole, dig it deep for me to fall asleep. Dig it down, dig it round. Hey everyone, welcome to CureCast, the podcast that we hope feeds the movement we need to cure paralysis from spinal cord injury. My name is Matthew Roderick. I'm the executive director at Unite to Fight Paralysis. This podcast is brought to you by Unite to Fight Paralysis. Welcome to our episode today where we interview two researchers from the University of Minnesota. And a little different than usual, these are researchers who are focused on brain, and more specifically even TBI. And this conversation comes as an idea from my podcast partner, Jason, uh, who upon reflection after our efforts in Texas, where we are working to pass a spinal cord injury research funding bill, came across a broad coalition uh, called the Texas Brain Institute, trying to pass a multi-billion dollar investment in brain research. And so we started thinking about, well, what's the overlap between brain research and spinal cord injury research? And so this is the conversation we have really focused on a few things. What's the overlap in terms of the problem and some of the strategies to address novel therapeutics? Uh, what are the opportunities that might exist for collaborations between brain researchers and spinal cord injury researchers? And also dig in a little bit to when do researchers early in their career make those decisions about those areas that they're going to focus on? And then lastly, could these collaborations deliver strategies for both conditions of brain and SEI? And would that kind of solve a little bit of a problem where we might create more potential investment if a novel therapeutic could be applicable to multiple conditions of brain and CNS disorders and spinal cord injury? This is the conversation we have. We hope you enjoy it. We found it quite informative. So here we go. And please reach out to us. You're welcome to email at curecast at u2fp.org. Here we go. Uh, welcome to both of you to the podcast. Um, and as per the explanation previously about why we're talking to you, uh, let's just first hear a little bit from each of you. Walt, why don't you start? Where are you? Well, Where are I you? Uh, who am I? I'm a professor in the Department of Neurosurgery and the Stem Cell Institute at the University of Minnesota. So I've been here now for about 30 years. Uh, Andy was one of my uh, the medical students that rotated in my my lab many many years ago. And uh, when stem cell uh, was that. just nice. a, an idea, and stem cell therapy was just a, a an idea that was percolating in our mind. And so you know, uh, since that time, there's been a tremendous amount of you know progress that's been going on. Uh, and uh, a lot of it in the, the neurospace in terms of uh, traumatic brain injury and spinal cord injury and also uh, various neurological disorders. And so that's where I come from. That's where I am right now. Um, okay. Andy, I'm go ahead. Call, I'm going to call Walt out on that. I don't think he's doing the math correctly because I've worked with Walt for 22 years. <laughs> and I think he had been here a long time before I got to know him. So... I'm not sure you're doing that math correctly, but anyhow. You said he's lying about his age? Is that what you're saying? No, he didn't say anything about his age. He just talked about his tenure here. He's put even more time in here than I think he's getting giving himself credit for. Um, yeah, so so I'm Andy Grand, um, a vascular neurosurgeon uh, here at the University of Minnesota. Um, I have been on faculty in the Department of Neurosurgery for 11 years. 
Um, but I actually started doing research here at the university in 1996. And uh, at that time, got into the neuroscience. Uh, I was involved in neuroscience research, um, started to get to know some of the neuroscience faculty. And when I was admitted to medical school then and started in 2000, uh, one of the first stops I, I made was to Walt's lab uh, to see if I could work with him. And I volunteered in his lab for four years as a medical student. And um, at the time, I didn't necessarily have an interest in um, stroke or traumatic brain injury or spinal cord injury. Um, but I uh, started working with Walt and was given an opportunity to do some work in uh, stroke. And at that time, um, Catherine Verfai had just started the Stem Cell Institute. And one of Walt's um, talents is collaborating and, and identifying uh, innovative technology. And uh, he uh, partnered with Catherine and started working with her cells, um, which are now called MAPC cells. And we uh, started using those cells in our um, stroked uh, rodents and found a benefit. And, uh, and that really um, got me interested and excited about stroke, stem cells, and ultimately brain injury. Um, you know, traumatic brain injury and stroke are, are pretty similar as far as what is occurring in the brain. And uh, when I went down to Cincinnati to do my um, residency, I then was fortunate to work with a really unique scientist and um, did some work on stem cells and ultimately reprogramming of non-neuronal cells into neurons. And then I had the opportunity through him to do a really unique fellowship called the Van Wagenen Fellowship. And, and that gave me the opportunity to travel to Munich, Germany at Ludwig Maximilian University for a year. And I worked with Magdalena Goetz and uh, was uh, working uh, again on reprogramming studies. Uh, and that set the, the foundation for when I returned to the university. Walt was kind enough to um, continue to mentor me and to bring me into his lab here. And um, and since then, we've been working together on stroke, traumatic brain injury, spinal cord injury, and uh, identifying neuroregenerative and neurorestorative therapies for those diseases. And so I've had the pleasure of being mentored uh, and working with Walt for 22 years since uh, 2000. Oh, great. That's, I, I didn't realize that the... Um... The early trajectory. I want to. I want to stop right there, though, and because it's it's something you you probably know we put in our outline, but maybe l later on in the conversation. But I think this is an apropos time to jump in and unpack a little bit. I mean, either one of you, um, how many medical students do what you did? Of uh, have to do a rotation through research. I'm assuming. Everybody has to do some kind of touch with research. Um, but then from there, how many kind of go deeper? And certainly, Andy, and the, at least the way I understood what you described, there was some exciting things that happened, some exciting results, and that really piqued your interest. Uh, did that come out of nowhere? Or were, were you sort of, did you already have an inclination towards that? Yeah. Um, well, so... As far as medical students doing research, it is not uh, a part of the curriculum. So as a medical student, you do not have to do research. Um, 
there are residencies that um, like to see research experience and will view that in a positive light when applying to residency programs. So if you want to get into some of these more competitive residency programs like neurosurgery, um, research is, is important. Um, I actually got involved in research knowing that I wanted to be a neurosurgeon, even going back to high school at St. Thomas Academy. I knew I wanted to be a neurosurgeon. That's why I went to medical school. And uh, to get into medical school, research experience is viewed positively. And so as a undergraduate, I knew I wanted to go to medical school, so I knew I needed to get research experience. And so the only reason I got involved in in research was because I I wanted to go to medical school. Um, What I discovered, um, to my surprise, was how much I enjoy research. And, And I've kind of viewed it as the right and left hemisphere of your brain, the right hemisphere or whatever, or left is the research side. The the other side is your clinical side. And to be whole, you need to use both sides of your brain. And that's how I view my research and clinical practice. I mean, I really need both to be whole. Um, And, um, you know, I've just found ever since as an undergrad, um, there has never been a time where I was not involved in research. Um, And it's whether or not on the weekends, at night, on vacations, you know, I just, I, I was always driven to just be involved in it. And, and I, I still, I mean, I'm, I'm involved in it. Um, I'm a clinician. And so, you know, as a clinician, you need to, you need to team up with somebody to, to really be doing um, research that, that is impactful. I'll let Walt kind of address the question as to how many medical students, um, you know, continue with research, but you know, it's, um, you know, I, I got involved with it and just never really been able to let it go. Um, that's just me. I don't know how many other medical students are like that. Well, well let me just preface, uh, you know, we both, um, we made a kind of effort in the legislative work. Uh, if I recall correctly, we talked about bringing forward an initiative to help fund and help entice uh, medical students and and undergraduates in neuroscience into this field. We were unsuccessful, but I remember us having conversations around this. I, I didn't realize some of the history you had, particularly with Andy. So, yeah, please please comment whatever comes to mind. So yeah, I, I think from the perspective of medical students, you know, we we see medical students rotate through the lab, uh, especially those who are interested in pursuing uh, some sort of neurosurgical focus. Uh, and so I, I would say those that do rotate go, go on to continue to have research as, as, as part of their, uh, you know, uh, repertoire of, of things that they do. Uh, but that's not always the case. And then and also some of the residents that uh, come into the, uh, the our neurosurgery program, uh, you know, in, in the past, it would be a split. Some of those who were interested in research and others that were not and uh, some who were just interested in, in clinical practice. But I think what we found is that by exposing them to that opportunity to do research, that it, it stimulates their, their, the intellectual aspect of, uh, of this field. And we found that you know, many of them uh, who were initially bent on doing private practice actually you know, loved being in the lab. Uh, some even requested an extension of time to continue to do research. And many of those uh, went on to do 
uh, academic careers uh, with research as a, a major part of, of what they do. So there is a, a, a significant number of, of, of medical students who continue to do research, and those, I think, are the ones who stay in the, the academic arena. From the sort of the undergrad you know, perspective, what we find is that there are uh, undergrads that are participating in a variety of research programs. And here at the University of Minnesota, we have the Undergraduate Research Opportunity Grant, the UROP grant. And this gives them a, a chance to experience what research is all about. And what we find there is that those, those students really go on to either uh, a medical career or a, a PhD uh, research career or a combined MD-PhD. Uh, and so I, I think that you know, the, the idea of trying to get funding for these people to expose them to spinal cord injury research or traumatic brain injury research, I think at an early age, I think it has really a, a seminal effect on them and it really guides them in their, their future uh, uh, career choices as to what they want to do. So I, I think uh, hopefully it's, uh, it's an opportunity that you know, we can have with state legislature in the future because I think we can document that there is a, a role for this, uh, this type of a program and it really changes the trajectory of these students in terms of what they do ultimately with their career. So I think, Matt, you know, kind of following up on this and, and as it relates to the initiatives that you've set forth with, um, you know, so within neurosurgery, um, I would venture to say that it's probably two to five percent of neurosurgeons are highly in, engaged in research. Um, that is just shooting from the hip. Um, but the, the reality of it is, is it's a small percentage of neurosurgeons that are highly engaged in research. Um, at the same time, neurosurgeons... What, what, Andy, what do you mean when you say highly engaged? You mean actively doing research and not sort of maybe touching it periodically in a, a research study or clinical study? Um, you know, have laboratories are applying for grant funding um, okay. to, to that extent. Got it. You know, there, there are some statistics on the, on the percentage that have NIH funding, which, again, is it's, it's in the single digits. Um, but, you know, the reality of it, it, it's a small percentage. Now, at the same time, neurosurgeons um, are in a unique position um, as it relates to the brain and the spinal cord. Um, neurosurgeons are kind of at an intersection of a lot of things, whether or not it's, you know, in the hospital, you're at the intersection of neurology, neurosurgery, psychiatry, um, psychology, uh, anesthesia, the ER, um, you're involved in the surgical management, but you're also involved in, in non-operative management as well. Um, I think uh, neurosurgeons, um, just by the, the nature of there are, you know, any hospital system only has a few neurosurgeons. Um, so, you know, you're, you're at the table and uh, you're, you're given the privilege of, of some influence. Um, so as it relates to the brain and the spinal cord, neurosurgeons are in a, a good position to influence things. Um, and so, you know, as it relates to, to the research studies, you know, I think um, we can partner and, and develop teams around us that, that can be in, um, used for research that impacts the spinal cord and, and the brain. And the funding that comes through um, these programs um, is funding that initiates pilot studies. Um, and that can be really useful for those teams that neurosurgeons are a part of. Um, sometimes 
um, you know, they, they early on may have a hard time getting that, that big NIH grant, but it doesn't mean that the research is not meaningful. And, and I think the, the funding that has come through the state has really been able to, to fund a lot of programs that have been beneficial for spinal cord and brain injury, and, and neurosurgeons can take advantage of that. Um, and so, you know, I think that the funding initiatives that you've created um, are really beneficial to neurosurgeons who are at this intersection, but yet a lot of them are, are not necessarily yet getting NIH funding per se. One, one question that one question that we've had, I know Matt and I have talked about um, before, is would recruitment into the space of specifically spinal cord injury um, out of just neuro in general, right? Um, would that, for one, would that even be helpful to what we are trying to do, and as far as advocacy for functional recovery, right? Like, could we? Is there a place or a time, or would it even be relevant? to try to recruit some folks that are maybe in neuro in general, but they haven't decided which way to differentiate, whether uh, to, to brain or to spine. Um, well, one, whether that would even be uh, useful, but also the second question, and um, this is to both of you, is in the arc of education, um, you know, whatever you start off, undergrad, um, grad, postdoc, where in this point in this arc of education do you see students start to differentiate um, toward uh, either spine or brain. Um, yeah, could you guys take that? So I guess from, a, from the graduate school perspective, well, I have a number of graduate students that come into the lab. And so they have a variety of, of choices of, of projects that they can work with. And so, for example, I have one student, uh, a neuroscience student right now, Alex Roman. And so Alex came in and he was really somewhat undifferentiated, you know, so he had sampled a number of different labs uh, at, at here at the University of Minnesota. Not really, you know, he wanted to study something about the nervous system. Uh, and so when we began to expose him to, to different projects, and then the, the one on cell reprogramming and the spinal cord really caught his eye and his attention. And so I, I think by recruiting these individuals at, at that stage, for, at least for the graduate students, so that's a point of, of differentiation and for them to kind of make a decision, you know, what do I want to spend the next four or five years getting up every morning doing? And so by giving him those, those opportunities, he was able to make a choice. And so I think by, by sort of, uh, I don't know if it's actively recruiting, but at least giving them the opportunity. The fact that we had funding from the state of Minnesota was a huge plus because, you know, it allowed us to set up the, these programs and it allowed us to have these students look at what's going on in the area of spinal cord injury and, and, and repair. And so I, I suspect that if we had something, you know, at, at a grander scale, that you, we could certainly recruit more and more people you know, into this area. Yeah, so Jason, I look at this as to, you know, what's the ideal team in the future to, um, you know, do meaningful research that impacts the, the brain and the spine. Um, so, you know, on that team, it's crucial to have the, the PhD neuroscientists. Um, that, that's absolutely crucial. I also think having the clinicians is crucial as well. So, you know, if you look at those two different groups, I think that that point of influence in which they decide what to do with their future and when do they get in, interested in the brain or the spine, there are different points in time. So for the, the neuroscientist, you know, I, I, it's really critical to capture the, that interest. 
early on in their PhD. Uh, like Walt is saying, you know, you have projects that are ongoing, they get excited about that project, then they dive into it. Um, so that's, you know, really, really early on, you got to capture them because if they choose that project that is elsewhere, you know, it's going to take their interest someplace else. On the clinical side, however, um, you know, it's, it's a little bit later, you know, as far as really, um, you know, a neurosurgeon, uh, for instance, it's probably not until the third, fourth, fifth year in their residency program, which is seven years long, that they really commit to subspecializing. And then they go on to do a fellowship in something. And, and I'd say for the majority of them during that time, it's, it's pretty, their focus is on, on the clinical side of things. Um, it's interesting when you look at MD-PhD students. So people who have gone through a program in which they've learned both clin- clinical work and PhD work, which you think, you know, they're, they're ideally positioned to be a clinician scientist. You know, I think what a lot of people have found is that a lot of those people go on to do a clinical practice, but rather it's, it's people that, you've, that have become interested in research later on in the residency that actually continue to go on to be involved in that research throughout their career. But, um, you know, I, so I think, um, you know, enticing the, the neurosurgeon to do research, that doesn't have, even have to be during the residency. That can be post-residency, you know, when they even get out in practice, that they can become interested in research and get involved in these teams. And I would just say that, you know, as it relates to that team that is doing clinical research for spinal cord injury, for instance, I think that blend of clinical and research is essential. Um, you know, one example of that here, uh, you know, I had been working with um, someone in the Institute of Engineering and Medicine, and they were doing really wonderful brain-computer interface work. But they had no interest in translating that to the stroke patient or the TBI patient. And the reason they had no interest in it is because they were kind of thinking about what is the ideal thing that TBI can be used for. And they weren't looking at the basic, simple things. You know, as a clinician, you realize that Little things matter for patients that have a spinal cord injury or a traumatic brain injury. And if we can just enable them to do those little things, that's a big win. Um, and so it really required convincing the PhD researcher that these little wins make huge differences in a patient's life. And it wasn't until that aha moment that they began to um, work on translation of the BCI uh, work for various brain injury. So, Andy, I'm curious um, what, I mean, to both of you, Walt as well, what kind of incentives have you seen been successful or be successful in encouraging those kinds of relationships between, uh, you know, the PhD researcher and clinician and clinician researcher? And then second to that question, I just, as a bit of context, I don't want to overcomplicate, but I'm, ha- I'm going to have to assume that the research clinician, like Andy, you, you've got to be a little more driven than even your average clinician. Uh, I'm guessing you get pulled on to, on, you know, you described left and right brain. I'm, I'm, I'm guessing you get pulled often on your left and right brain. Like maybe your partners think you're not seeing enough patients doing enough surgeries. The, the, the institution is like, no, you need more grants and you need more publications. I'm, I'm guessing you're getting yanked 
in both directions, and it requires a particularly driven kind of person to do that. Yeah, and I'll just I'll follow up on that, and then Walt, maybe you can take on the the research uh, side. What kind of research facilitates these interactions? But I don't know if it's as much a driven personality as it is a resilient personality. Um, because the reality of it is you'll never be as successful clinically as the clinician who is doing this 100% of the time. And you're never going to be as successful research-wise as the researcher doing this 100% of the time. And so to a lot of people that you interact with, um, you're not successful um, by <laughs> the measures that are right. applied um, in, the, in the environments we work in. And so um, I, I'll be honest, you know, collaborations are really important. Um, but for a clinician scientist, you know, identifying people to collaborate with, like Walt, who value what you bring to the table, because again, there are researchers who are better than me. I mean, no doubt about it. There are clinicians that are better than me. But you know, hopefully by what I'm doing, bringing the two together, there's value at the end of the, the day or at the end of your career. Um, but that, that value is, it's, it's, I think, difficult to measure it in using our current standards. Well, I, I will extend upon that because I would say, Andy, that you are really positioned in a, a unique uh, area where you can bring together basic science and, and, and you know, clinical science you know, together to really do things that you know, independently we would not be able to do. And so you're right. I think, you know, Matthew's comments about being sort of pulled, you know, away in, in, in these different directions. But I think those of you who can, can actually bring things together, I think in the long term, that's where progress is going to be made. When you have, I think it was Einstein who said that the greatest developments that occur is when you bring together two disparate areas together, and then they are able to do something that they were not able to do individually. And so I, I think that, you know, and I applaud you for, for in being in this arena and bringing together the, the clinical and, and, and basic sciences. Now, in terms of yeah. the incentives, you know, I, I look at, you know, the different programs that I've been a part of, you know, o over the years. And the ones that, I guess, encourage this interdisciplinary research are, are the ones that really make the, the, the best progress in terms of enticing people to kind of work and working together. And so when I look at, you know, what, what kind of programs that have been structured, I think that, for example, when uh, Jacob Tolar, before he came being, he was the, the director of the Stem Cell Institute. And so a lot of the, with the funding that he had available to him, he would, you know, put out, um, you know, RFAs, requests for applications, with projects that really brought people together. Uh, and the same is true now for the Institute for Engineering and Medicine. A lot of the, the new programs that they are putting forth are those that combine engineers and clinicians, engineers and basic scientists, neuroscientists. And so with, with the thought that when you bring together experts in different areas and they come together, and they can do things that, again, as I said, that individually they could not do by themselves. And so, so the, to, I think the incentives to entice people to do that are to provide you know, uh, a pool of money that will force people to get together and think about how to work in a synergistic way. Yeah, and I, I could not agree more with that comment. Um, you know, I, I have to believe that 
that moving forward, the, the biggest successes are going to be where you have a, a team approach um, that is focused on a clinical goal. And so you know, I think tr- traditionally in, in academics, the goal has not been a clinical goal per se. Uh, I mean, if you look at research, I mean, it doesn't even matter if it's, you know, if it's a PhD or an MD that's doing research within an academic institution, um, they are evaluated and rewarded for individual success. And that individual success has nothing to do with disease. <laughs> so, um, you know, and, and I've seen it before where I worked in a really good lab in Germany and every PhD student in that lab, their whole PhD was focused around having a publication at the end of your PhD that was published in cell, science, nature, st- uh, cell, stem cell, whatever, but you got your publication. Once you got your publication, that was the trophy and you went on to whatever you wanted to do. You know, and it was, it was unfortunate because I, th- I saw a lot of projects that really stopped with that publication. I mean, that publication was the end goal. Um, not some meaningful contribution to a disease state. And, uh, you know, so, you know, I, I think, unfortunately, the way academics are set up are not set up to foster um, group science. Um, so, you know, all of us who work in the university go up for promotion and tenure. And that promotion and tenure is not based on the number of collaborations you've had. It's not based on how your science or your, your efforts have impacted a disease. But it's, it's based on, you know, what grants have you gotten, how many publications have you gotten, and all those are very important, but there is not um, an incentive within this system that, that promotes um, team science and, and promotes actually a focus on impacting a certain disease. And so, you know, you guys talk about this initiative you have in Texas where you could get a couple billions of, you know, a couple billion dollars for neuroscience. You know, I mean, once you have a couple billion dollars um, that you can use for funding, now you've got people's attention. And can you incentivize people then to work together, number one? And number two, incentivize them to work together to make an impact on certain disease pathology? Well, and that's, I think, the key. Well, first off, it's not our initiative in Texas. It was, uh, it kind of blindsided us. We'd been working on a SCI bill, and then uh, discovered there was this, you know, billion-dollar, ten-year investment. Um, uh, but I, I, I wholeheartedly agree with you, and it strikes me that, and even in the case of Texas, as you described, the money isn't enough, and the money isn't it. It's the it's this incentive structure that's built into how that money. It's the strings attached to that money, because you're not the first person that we've had on the podcast to. I mean, actually, not too long ago, a um, uh, researcher from Drexel, you know, basically described um, her performance evaluation um, that had nothing to do with the results of her research and its relevance to the disease. It had everything to do with publication, grants, PhD students, where they went, where they came from, where they're coming in from. Um, well, and to, to your point, you're absolutely right. And that's where I think to some degree, the initiative that we have been trying to pass around the country and what, certainly what we did in Minnesota is a facet of that. I think our thinking and approach was we're going to create a collaborative body that includes the experts of people with lived experience into the mix, you know, towards that 
sense of urgency for targets, for outcome, for restoration of function, you know, that we wanted to bring that together in the hope that we could incentivize. Can, can I just piggyback on that for just a moment? I mean, yeah. you mentioned what has been done here in Minnesota. And, you know, when I look at myself and Walt and, and what we're doing and the impact that this initiative has had, it's significant. Um, prior to this initiative, certainly my focus, but I think for both of us, our focus had been on stroke. Um, the opportunity to get funding through the state for traumatic brain injury, we were able to easily pivot our research towards traumatic brain injury. And, you know, the two of us, you know, began focusing on traumatic brain injury, and that now is a, a major focus of our lab. But because of that, we actually brought in collaborators. So we brought in Maxim Chirin, um, and Maxim has now taken on an interest in traumatic brain injury. We've brought in um, Jesse Williams, who's another PI who now is interested in traumatic brain injury. Um, and separate from this, Tim Ebner as well um, became interested in traumatic brain injury as well. And, you know, I can tell you that our weekly lab meeting, which was just our lab to begin with, has now become an entire research group focused on traumatic brain injury. And now you have actually four separate labs that meet on a weekly basis to talk about the traumatic brain injury research that's going on here. And so, you know, this program has had a dramatic impact, not only on our own research, but it's actually fostered the development of a traumatic brain injury research consortium here at the university. So I would like to use that as a, just a way to, to pivot to what, what I want to call um, maybe the meat of this conversation, which is, what are the similarities and how are and how and what are the like uh, how are they dissimilar um brain science and spine science uh, with with the idea that <clears throat> you know you have these model systems like uh like say craig that's a tbi sci um rehab place right but they've got their different floors they're separated there's different docks there's all this kind of stuff but yet they're also very closely they're also very closely related and i would really like to explore this idea of how is there how can we have synergy i guess i don't know if that's the right word between the two to propel the science uh, towards functional recovery in both and so if you guys wouldn't mind um, maybe uh, uh, maybe walt would you mind uh, walking us through just a very very 30,000 foot view of of even the the physiology of how of how the brain and the spine um, are the same and different. So I would I would say the the similarities in terms of spinal cord injury and traumatic brain injury is has to do with the pathophysiology. I mean, here you have this mechanical damage that occurs, and so there is just based on the mechanical deformation of of these nervous system tissue, there are similar processes that are that are going on. Now, we, we know that there are uh, processes of what we call necrosis. You know, cells begin to die, all right, mm -hmm. early on, uh, just because of the mechanical uh, trauma, you know, that occurs. But then there is this pathophysiology that's very common to, to spinal cord and traumatic brain injury and even, even stroke, and that involves the immune system. And so it really releases a, a cascade of, of immune responses that are really inappropriate in the context of, of you know, what, what the immune system tries to do. The immune system is designed to recognize 
pathogens uh, in, in foreign invaders and things like that. And then it, it, it sort of brings in all of these different cells, you know, to those areas of, of infection and so forth. But what happens in the, in the context of TBI and spinal cord injury is that now you have a, an influx, the, the earliest uh, cellular response are these influxes of neutrophils and, and macrophages. And they come in because they say, oh, there, there, there's some sort of trauma here. All right, something's going on that needs to be repaired. So these are the first of the army of, of, of immune cells that come in. And because of that, they indiscriminately begin to secrete all of these cytokines, these inflammatory cytokines that bring in other players. You know, they bring in NK cells. They, they bring in, you know, uh, T cells. They bring in, you know, B cells. And they all contribute to this inflammatory environment that kills cells indiscriminately, right? And so that's mm-hmm. what we have, this, this concept of what we call the penumbra. The penumbra is an area of brain that's been damaged either by stroke or even, you know, uh, TBI that can be repaired if it's, you know, if, if you find, you know, the right ways to tweak the, the, the immune system. And so uh, people have been looking at, and so, you know, there's a commonality here. There are... Uh, I don't know. Uh, there's a penumbra in stroke, penumbra with, with TBI. There's there's a, a lack of blood flow that occurs with TBI and even in stroke. Galen Roxwald, who was in, uh, a member of our department, is a TBI researcher for, for many, many decades. And his group showed that following TBI, there is an arrest of blood flow for a period of time, just like stroke. And when that happens, whenever there's trauma to the brain or the nervous system or the spinal cord, there's going to be this lack of blood flow, this lack of oxygen, and that initiates all these immune responses, you know, that occur. So that's where I think that there's a commonality of, of TBI and also spinal cord injury that if we can develop therapies that begin to look at how to modulate the immune system. And can we do that in a way where we can dampen down this prolonged inflammatory response that we know is deleterious to both brain and spinal cord, you know, after injury. And so there are, there are commonalities there in terms of the, the, the pathophysiology. The differences are, you know, it's, it's where the, the damage occurs, right? So each area of the brain and the nervous system is responsible for different functions. And so depending upon where the damage occurs in traumatic brain injury or what level and where in the spinal cord, you know, that, that injury occurs, now you get a, a different manifestation of that in terms of the disabilities you know, that occur. And so then there are other, you know, so we need to think about, you know, those aspects too. There's some beautiful work at, uh, uh, at the American Society for Neurotherapy and Repair. They had a symposium, an international symposium on spinal cord injury. And some of the experts in Japan were presenting their work on transplanting cells. And so what they found is that in the spinal cord, that in terms of their transplantation studies, that there is a, a different type of what we call specificity of the cells. And so if you have a damage that occurs in one level of the spinal cord, what you need to do, what they found, is that you have to transplant cells that are homologous to that level of the spinal cord. There is that level of sophistication and specification that occurs. And so same with you know, traumatic brain injury. I think that in terms of you know, replacement of cells, you know, we, we have to, to, to develop cell therapies that are give rise to cells that are homologous to that area of damage. And that, that that's and, well, just, I, I just want to make sure kind of for the sake of our listeners, I understand what you're describing. 
But I just want to make sure. Uh, so what you're saying is, for instance, an oligodendrocyte at, at C6 is different from an oligodendrocyte at T10. And, and, and so the right? so whatever the cell is, right? Whatever the they cell may be the same yeah. kind of cell, but at different levels or at different places in the brain, mm -hmm. they actually have a different structure, or morphology, or size, or and function correct? too. Yeah. Fu okay. And, and, right. so, you know, and clearly, the neuronal cells at each level are, are are different, and so if you want to, you know, repair the the alpha motor neurons that are damaged that innervate the the skeletal muscle. So, you know, that, that phenotype is going to be different there. It's going to look for a different partner in terms of who to talk to when, when it forms connections, you know, between the other cells in, in the nervous system or in the spinal cord. And so, yes. So, you know, we, we now know that, you know, when we look at astrocytes in, in different areas of brain, we know that really there, there, there is a specificity to those astrocytes. And, and so it's not just a, you know, a generic astrocyte that, that's found in one area that can be used for another. So that, that kind of specificity now is really uh, taking front and center in terms of focus. And that, and I've been very impressed with some of the work that the new work that's coming out for spinal cord injury in terms of identifying, you know, what are the cells that, you know, how do we look at the, the, the similarity of cells in terms of the appropriate cells to implant into a particular area? And the technology now in terms of what we have, the, we have a technology to look at individual cells and we can look at the what we call the the RNA, the transcript that are expressed in those areas in those cells, and then if we can then characterize that and figure out what are the cells that are going to be most appropriate in terms of repair uh, and, and regenerating circuitry, I think that we have the technology now that will allow us to do that uh, to move forward both in spinal cord and traumatic brain injury. So, Jason, just to kind of follow up on this though, too, I mean, I I think this is a really exciting topic as far as how do you find synergy between uh, traumatic brain injury and spinal cord injury so that research and new therapies um, move the field uh, forward as quickly as possible? And, you know, as Walt nicely described, there's a lot of similarities in the pathophysiology. And because of those similarities, um, you can uh, apply certain therapies to both traumatic brain injury and spinal cord injury. Um, and we've done that uh, with the umbilical cord blood stem cells that Walt's been working with for a long time that impact infl uh, inf inflammation in the brain and spinal cord. Um, we think we can do that with our reprogramming therapies as well, where you can apply one therapy to the brain, another to the spinal cord. At the same time, though, there are differences in and recognizing those differences is important as well. I don't think that you can treat these as the same. Um, you know, we talked a lot about um, bringing clinicians and scientists together um, to study a disease. Um, the clinicians that are treating spinal cord injury are typically very different than the clinicians treating traumatic brain injury. Um, and, uh, you know, you need to have the specific, you need to have clinicians with their disease expertise a part of your team. Um, and then I would also point to um, the eSTEM trial and some of the other work that has been done with spinal cord stimulators. You know, certainly there's, there's technology that's been developed that seems to be very specific to these different disease um, processes, like eSTEM as it relates to the, the benefit for spinal cord injury. And then I think, you know, as it relates to the diseases themselves and, and really kind of how do you impact 
the quality of life of patients. Um, you know, there are different things. The, the diseases lead to different challenges. Um, you know, I think for spinal cord injury, what I've learned from my colleagues involved in eSTEM, you know, if we can improve the, um, the, the core strength of an individual, so they sit up right, better, we've benefited them. If we can impact um, bladder control, that's a huge benefit to, to patients with spinal cord injury. With traumatic brain injury, uh, you know, a big problem that those patients have, they can't advocate for themselves in many uh, circumstances, which is very different than the spinal cord injury population. And so, you know, there are different challenges that they both face. And so I think it's, it's good to take advantage of the similarities. But yet at the same time, I think it's important to recognize the differences. And I would just lastly just comment on, you know, the, 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 the funding mechanism that exists in, in Minnesota is separate. There's half of the money that is available for research goes to, to the traumatic brain injury. Half goes to spinal cord injury. And inadvertently, I think that that has been a good thing. Um, you've got people that are just focused on spinal cord injury who, you know, they're starting to think, well, but there's also this money that's available for traumatic brain injury. Maybe I should try to figure out a way to apply my research to traumatic brain injury so I can have access to that funding. Right. And the same right. thing is true from the traumatic brain injury people. These are people who have no interest in spinal cord injury, but they're like, uh, maybe I could apply my research to spinal cord injury and have access to, to that funding as well. And so right. you're, yeah. you're getting this cross-pollination that I don't think, I don't know if anyone anticipated that, but it, it certainly has happened. And I can tell you, we're living proof of that. But That's, that's would, a really good point, Andy. I mean, that's a, that's a really good point. I think uh, <clears throat> I sometimes listen to this, uh, this uh, podcast called The Hidden Brain. I don't know if you guys ever listened to that one, but um, they had one on recently uh, called The Edge Effect. And it, uh, it referenced uh, what Yo-Yo Ma does, cellist, a musician, that he purposely gets all of these folks from all sorts of different musical backgrounds and cultures with varied instruments for the express purpose of finding the magic that happens at the edge, right, of those. Yeah. So the edge effect is a biological term as well for ecology. But he does that on purpose. He gets people like of, of, of different backgrounds together and they, they might, they wind up coming up with this musical magic. But I know that the same thing happens in research. I know that the same thing happens in, in uh, not, not just music, but uh, other types of research that you purposely uh, populate or uh, uh, inoculate um, yeah. like a, a Petri dish of, of, of diversity to see yeah. what magic w would come from that. And so, so in this, along this concept, so there's, there's an institute in Buffalo, New York. Um, the name has changed now a couple of times. I'm not even quite sure what it, it, it um, Mm -hmm. It had, I think it's now the Jacobson Institute. Prior to that, it had been the Toshiba Institute. And it's focused around um, cerebrovascular uh, disease. And this institute has been created where everybody walks into the building at the same door. And they take an elevator up to the middle of the building. And then from that elevator, if you're a clinician, you go down the staircase to your respective floors. If you're a researcher, you go up the stairways to the respective floors, but everybody enters on the collision floor. Okay. And, you know, we've taken advantage of this concept of collisions. And so we've created a brain injury research um, group, our um, brain aneurysm research group, our trigeminal neurology research group, um, and, and uh, neurorobotics research group. And all of these groups are based on this idea of fostering collisions. 
And so in, in a couple of those groups, we actually do this monthly. We actually have collisions. And, and the whole goal of the collision is nothing more than just to bring people together, have them collide and interact and see what comes from it. So, you know, I think just fostering collisions, it, it's fun to see what can happen. And, and I think you're describing it as the edge effect. I think it's the same thing. You know, the NIH had something very similar. Actually, it's a, the National Institutes of Aging. So they had so much money because of uh, they are now the, uh, the institute that funds Alzheimer's disease research. And because of this, the congressional funding, they had more money than they, you know, they could, they knew what to do with. And so what they did is that they, they had supplemental applications, but it couldn't come from an NIA uh, awardee. It had to come from somebody working in, uh, with a grant with another institute using that technology in a different way. But then the, the goal was for those individuals being funded off of another institute grant to take the technology that they were developing and using that to somehow figure out uh, how can we improve Alzheimer's disease research, either diagnosis or therapy. And so these supplemental grants are exactly like the, the collisions that, that Andy is talking about and the, the, the kind of cross-fertilization that we have between SCI and TBI you know, here, here in, in, in Minnesota. And because they know that if you bring in other people, you bring in smart people in different areas and you have them think about your problem, that you're going to be able to move your, your research portfolio uh, much faster. So to follow up on this, um, you know, we, you're talking about the NIH and, and the NIH and the National Science Foundation has a really important role to play in, in research around the country. However, um, it certainly, they both fund niches of research. Um, and, and that research doesn't, is not necessarily focused always on impacting patients that have a disease pathology. Um, so, you know, here we're talking about collisions. And, and I wouldn't say that there's a big focus or emphasis from the NIH or the NSF in funding these collisions, for instance. Um, and uh, in addition to that, what I've learned from this initiative in Minnesota is, and, and, you know, when grants are proposed, we have patients that have disease who are evaluating these grants. And, you know, they, 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 they certainly like the grants that are based on, on heavy science, but, you know, grants that are based on, on impacting quality of life. Um, and those grants don't necessarily get the same um, consideration in the NIH as they do here. And, and so you're able to fund, I think, things that normally would not be funded by the NIH and the NSF, but are meaningful. And I, I can really, I can remember this one conversation. There was a grant proposed here for traumatic brain injury, and it was on educating the traumatic brain injury population. I think, Matt, you were, you were, you were here, so I don't know if you remember this, but it was educating the traumatic brain injury population at the VA around sexuality and on, on actually restraint um, as it comes to sexuality. And, um, you know, a lot of these patients have injury to the frontal lobe that can impact one's own restraint. And the reality is these patients may be less inhibited. And I remember this conversation because this one individual just spoke up and, and just said, boy, that could have really helped me. I mean, and it just it was it, it, it was really enlightening. And also I realized, you know, like this is a project that never would be funded in the NIH. But could be funded here and it has a direct impact on these these patients. And so, you know there's a need for funding that is outside of the NIH and the NSF um, for, for things that really impact quality of life, number one. 
And number two, you know, one of those could be collisions. And, and I guess for your group, you know, one of the things that we've done that we wouldn't have done had it not been for COVID, given everything is now virtual, what we've now done several times in our neurorobotics research consortium for our collisions, we've been able to invite three to four speakers for these mini symposiums that we put together and they're two to three hours long. We've got speakers from all around the country. They come and, and, and we're talking about neurorobotics. And we would have never been able to do that before. But, you know, I mean, why not, um, you know, monthly or bi-monthly or a few times a year, you know, start hosting our own collisions around traumatic brain injury and spinal cord injury research or just, you know, uh, you know, research that is basic science or translational. But, but I mean, we certainly could be hosting these same collisions ourselves um, through your organization. So just something that came to mind. But anyhow. Thanks. Uh, I mean, all those are those are all great examples, um, and I and I know, you know, back to something you said, Andy. I, I I don't think, you know, as as one of the even original, um, you know, architects of this program, like I don't, I, there was no anticipation of the kinds of cross fertilization that came. I think in some ways there was more like sort of uh, a, 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 a sort of scarcity mentality. Like we want to make sure that spinal cord injury gets enough money, you know, not so much thinking about, well, there's an opportunity therein where these collisions can happen or these, you know, people on each side of that fence can say, oh, there's an opportunity here to do something a little different. I'm really curious, um, you know, because one of the other aspects is what, I think we really hoped we would accomplish and continue to hope that we can accomplish is to carve out this kind of in-between space. Uh, you know, I think you've described what NIH and NSF um, will fund and generally won't fund, but then also what NIDLR, like through the model systems, will fund, which is much more sort of um, along the lines of the description you gave of the TBI you know, helping folks deal with the, the issues around sexuality, like more like immediately clinically relevant. We were looking to thread this needle between how do we get some of that stuff that NIH is funding over the, over the threshold to clinical relevance and more sort of bold approaches to how can we take discovery and fit it into a clinical approach so we can restore function in people. That was really our driver, which I know is a little different there's a little different mandate in the TBI side, uh, at least as I've worked in the last number of years. Um, the SCI side is a little more aggressive on, okay, let's restore some function. Let's go now. Let's get, let's get a dermatome or, or you know, a particular function um, addressed to restore. Um, so I'm curious, what do you see even in that regard uh, in terms of some promising research, either that's happening here, promising things that you hear about and understand. I know Andy, you mentioned it a bit involved in the the ESTEM study here in in Minnesota. Uh, I think you have you you've implanted some folks. Even is that right? Um, Actually, I, I used it to. Uh, yeah, we implanted a neighbor of mine uh, that uh, had a spinal cord injury from an epidural injection. 11 years ago, but uh, was able oh, to actually use this um, and implanted a neighbor of mine. 
Wait, like in the basement or the garage? What do you mean? Yeah, exactly. Um, <laughs> no, I mean, actually what had happened is um, you know, one of the neighbors, my, my, I, I grew up in a, a very close-knit community, um, and my parents were very connected to their, their neighbors, and one of them had, you know, back pain, radiculopathy, was told they had to get an epidural injection, did so, and uh, had and came out of there with a you know, T12 complete spinal cord injury. Um, which was, you know, I looked at the research and, you know, like it says like there's three or four reported cases of this in the literature, but I think it's my own sense is that it's underreported. It must be, uh, otherwise he yeah. should, I mean, there's no way that it's gotta be underreported, but anyhow, so he had this spinal cord injury and, um, his uh, son-in-law grabbed me at a, at one of our neighborhood parties, which is adjacent neighborhood essentially and just said you know we've heard about this e-stim can we get you know my father-in-law involved in it um i don't i don't think he qualified for the e-stim itself but because he had back pain we were able to implant a spinal cord simulator for back pain um but then david darrow um began working with him and manipulating the electrodes just like he has been doing an e-stim um, you know, for spinal cord, for restoration of function. Um, and so it was an offshoot of the E-STEM trial, not, not officially enrolled in it, but, um, we were able to take advantage of the infrastructure that had been set up. Uh, and, you know, for me, this was pretty remarkable because I could, you know, utilize it to, you know, to try to help someone who, you know, was very close to me. So Matthew, you asked what what we think about as you know potential you know new therapies uh, moving forward into the clinic, and I, and I think that you know there's this emergence now of of cell reprogramming. You know we've had gene therapy now for, for 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 decades, and and I've been involved in gene therapy where we use a certain you know viral vector to deliver uh, you know DNA for for protein. So for you know mutations that occur because proteins are missing. And so that was basically the focus of the, the field of gene therapy. How, how do you, you know, insert a, uh, a missing protein or a mutated protein? But now it's evolved to the point where now the, the, the kinds of genes that people are introducing are those can activate sort of functions uh, that occur early on during development. And so, you know, I, I, I view this cell reprogramming as really an exciting and emerging area of, of repair for both spinal cord and traumatic brain injury. I think some of the, the most impressive things that I, I initially saw were coming out of Gong Chen's lab in stroke. And, and so he, he gave a presentation you know, uh, you know, a few years ago at this meeting at the American Society for Neurotherapy and Repair. And he had these, these mice that had a stroke that was induced with the stroke. And usually there's this big cavitation that occurs, just like traumatic brain injury. But then he was able to take the certain genes that are very important early on during the, the development of the nervous system uh, for specification of neuronal cell types. And so in this case, it was, it was neuro D1, for example. And then he was able to you know, have that gene expressed in, in astrocytes to reprogram to become neuronal cells. But what struck me was the, the, the consequence of that. It was like there was a recapitulation of the whole developmental process of the brain. So instead of having a big hole in the brain as a result of the stroke, you had these layers and layers of neuronal cells that were now redeveloped again. And then they had, they had projections 
axons that would you know, go down into the spinal cord, for example, and other areas of brain in a highly specific fashion. So it's like reprogramming not just an individual cell, but re reprogramming an area of brain to recapitulate the process of development to restore function. So it, it's almost like what you see in these amphibians. When you have a spinal cord injury or uh, if you have damage to the brain, it's a repair process that, that occurs that rebuilds things in a way that it normally did during the process of development. And so I see this as, I, I think, as an area of, of research that eventually, hopefully, will be able to, to repair and, uh, and regenerate the spinal cord and regenerate areas of brain to restore function again. So to me, I think that is really one of the more exciting areas of, of, of research that's going on at the present time. Well, I think to Jason's point uh, before about synergy, um, when you look at uh, neuronal reprogramming for restoration of function, you know, that is a therapy that can be applied to both traumatic brain injury and also the spinal cord. Yeah. Right, right. Hey, real quick, you guys. Um, so in spinal cord injury in the United States, I think we're right around somewhere between three and 400,000 folks with SCIs. Do you happen to have that number for um, TBI in the U.S.? Yeah, so it's about 2.5 million traumatic brain injuries a year. Okay. Um, and I'm not quite sure how this math adds up, but it, it, it's roughly 6 million Americans living with traumatic brain injury. So I guess what that highlights is um, you know, a number of these people with traumatic brain injury die. Oh. Um, but the, the number of people impacted with traumatic brain injury uh, is significant. Yeah. Well, you think I mean, about that number. exceeds yeah. stroke and also, you know, even spinal cord injury. But well, that one, number rivals, so ahead, uh, rivals yeah. Alzheimer's disease. And so Alzheimer's disease yeah. gets a lot of, you know, I, I think profile, uh, as it should. But when you look at the, the numbers of, you know, there are about 5 million patients right now with Alzheimer's disease. Uh, but that's that's uh, going. It's projected to almost double, you know, in the in the, in the next decade. But TBI, in terms of the numbers, really rivals you know Alzheimer's disease, and I, I think that's underappreciated by the the the, the lay public. Well, sure. the other, the other thing that goes into that, I mean, with traumatic brain injury, I mean, you know, long term, there's cognitive decline, and so you know, how many of these people with cognitive decline? Or cognitive deficits are, are assumed to be Alzheimer's or or not, um, you know. So I mean, certainly with with traumatic brain injury, one impact is cognitive decline over time. I mean, certainly that has been brought to light with CTE or chronic traumatic encephalopathy. Um, you know, the the downside there is that these people develop a dementia over time. Well, you know, the reason, the reason I asked the question is that something, uh, something in the SCI world that we, we find is, is against us is our, is our, is our size, is our, our population. We're kind of a, we're sort of a small population out of sight, out of mind. And then also, I'm sure this happens with TBI as well, that, um, you know, there's a lot of folks that just disappear, you know, there are a lot of folks that just are in their houses. They don't go out in public or whatever the heck it is. And so we're constantly trying to, we're, we're dealing with this issue of any innovation for spinal cord injury, we have to try to grow that market to other neuropathologies or whatever it is so that we can get enough uh, critical mass behind it to push it into markets. Um, just wondering, 
wondering if in brain there is the same, again, back to the synergy thing. I mean, uh, and also back to what research is actually back current research is actually dealing with both that do you guys think about the same problem of trying to needing to expand your market to or ex, expand into other uh, disease pathologies in order to get to market yeah, i mean i'd say without a doubt i mean even though five million people is a lot of people it it, it, it pales in comparison to diseases like uh, diabetes right. um, or heart disease um so, you know, I think, I think whether or not it's traumatic brain injury or spinal cord injury, I, I think the same thing applies. Um, the other thing as a result, as it relates to both of these, um, as it stands right now, um, it, there's a limited involvement from industry for treatment of these diseases. And, you know, what I mean by that is, you, know, you take a company like Medtronic or Stryker. These are these are massive medical device companies, and they have an influence on um, diseases. Um, so, sp spinal instrumentation for spine problems. Um, you know that's that's an area where both of these companies um, generate a tremendous amount of revenue, and so there's a lot of innovation related to um, fusion of the spine because people make a lot of money, whether or not it's healthcare systems or device companies, they make a lot of money on that. There aren't a lot of devices that exist right now for spinal cord injury or for traumatic brain injury. And a lot of these therapies that we've been talking about um, are a lot more complex than your basic spinal instrumentation. And so, you know, I think one of the challenges that we face in bringing innovation to market, innovation to the patients, um, the, the treatments that are required for spinal cord injury or for traumatic brain injury, we're talking about cellular treatments, reprogramming, regenerating um, circuits. Um, it's complex. It's a lot more complex than creating a new pedicle screw. And as a consequence, you know, these companies, they're very good at generating a new pedicle screw. Um, the research um, period from development of the device to market for um, whether or not it's a pedicle screw or whether or not it's, um, um, you know, something for neurointervention, which I, you know, will do for the treatment of stroke. You know, that development period is, is maybe this long. But when you start to look at cell therapies or regenerative therapies, that development period now stretches out to here, and it's beyond the bandwidth of these large companies. What they're depending on are smaller, innovative companies that are developing this technology that they can later acquire and then bring that to market. Um, but you know, I do think we, we face a, a mountain to climb in bringing the innovative therapies that will make an impact for traumatic brain injury and spinal cord injury. because industry at this point in time, it's, it's beyond their capability. Well, and it requires, uh, to your point, it requires um, something not unlike what you were talking about with uh, cell, cell reprogramming. Like if, if NeuroD1 was able to be um, discovered and delivered in such a way to reprogram glia cells into the, to, to neurons or even other, um, you know, cells 
now you have a potential treatment across a very heterogeneous, both both singular condition and across disease, right? So if well, you, can, in, in, you can do yeah, that in, in the brain and the cord and for uh, degenerative, you know, CS, CNS disorders, all of those things could be tweaked appropriately. Now you have something that would interest industry because you have a much, much larger market. Yeah, well, in true, fact, you're, you're starting to see this. I mean, New Excel, which is a new company that's based on the NeuroD1 technology, and I think the excitement around that company is, is the ability to use reprogramming with NeuroD1 not only to treat stroke, traumatic brain injury, but to treat Parkinson's, whether or not it can be used right. to treat Alzheimer's, Huntington's. And now if you start to, to spread this across that continuum of, of neurologic disease, um, you know, now there's incentive for, for a company to begin investing in this. Right. Hmm. Well, we've, we've uh, covered a lot, you guys. Um, yes, we have. We, we've covered a lot in a short uh, period of time. Talked, uh, talked a little bit about um, career and educational paths and arc and um, differentiation into spine and uh, into brain research or whether it's going to be research or whether it's going to be uh, clinical or, or surgery. Um, yeah, and maybe some new and exciting overlap and growth of market. So yeah, that's, that's a lot to chew on. Um, and, uh, certainly want to be respectful of your guys's time too. So, um, we'll, we'll probably wrap up here, but I wanted to give, give you an opportunity for any, um, final, final thoughts on the subject or, or anything for our viewers or our, our listeners, um, stuff to think about. So I, I would say that, you know, what you folks are doing at, at the grassroots level, you know, raising funds and actually trying to set up programs across the country for spinal cord injury and traumatic brain injury. I, I think this is fabulous. I, I think that, you know, I think history will look back at this and say, oh, here are some things now that have, have really reached the clinic and they'll be able to point to the participation. Of, of people, the community people, in terms of raising funds for scientists uh, to really move the, the, these therapies forward. So I, I laud you for this, and I, you know, I, I hope you, you know, have success in, in uh, convincing other states and their legislature to, to, to fund uh, spinal cord injury and traumatic brain injury research, as you have here in Minnesota. Well, and, I, and I would echo Walt and thank both of you for what you're doing. Um, I mean, I uh matt i've worked with you for a while jason i just met you but you know matt you've been an inspiration um i mean the the time and, and commitment and passion that you have for spinal cord injury and subsequently traumatic brain injury is real um you know it, it's you look at a lot of people who are you know they, they they go to work in the morning because it's a job um and uh you know this is not a job for you. This is, this is a burning passion and for your listeners to just appreciate what you're doing and the time and effort you're putting into this. And it's, um, if, if, if we just had 10 or 20 people that were doing the same as you, this world would be in such a better place. Um, you know, just to, to, to really go to work and, and just do something with the, the intention of, of really helping others. And it's, it's remarkable. 
Well, thanks for your, thanks for your kind words. I appreciate it. Uh, and, and both of you, I appreciate your work. Uh, having worked with you now um, here in Minnesota in this program in particular, and I appreciate what you do for our communities. Thanks. And thanks for being here with us today and having this conversation. I think, uh, I, I think it'll help kind of expand people's minds a little bit. Can you pleasure. send us a link of this? Go ahead. Yeah, sorry. But I don't want to let you go without the, the, the biggest question of all is, okay, you guys are in the quintessentially smart guy group. Um, so I want to hear your, uh, I want to hear your best, uh, quick argument on edging out the, uh, rocket scientists, brain surgeon versus rocket scientists. <laughs> and I'll leave that up to you. <laughs> <laughs> okay. That's fine. <laughs> brain surgeon versus, yeah, I mean, it's, um, it's yeah, awesome, no, you know, <laughs> there's there's a lot of there's a lot of good that has come from the rocket scientists okay. um but uh to date i don't think there's been uh any um malintent that has come from uh brain surgery or, or neuroscience oh okay that's the malintent yeah, yeah. Uh, argument okay i would yeah. say we're all you know we're all walking around with brains uh we don't all have rockets so that's probably an easy win for the brain guys. So dig my